Hello and welcome. My name is Roni Firon, and this is The Bigger Picture, where we sit down with experts to hear about their journeys, their insights, and the big ideas that drive them. Stay tuned for today's episode. In today's episode, I spoke with Professor David Buss, an evolutionary psychologist from UT Austin, about his latest book, When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. This conversation was incredibly enlightening. David employs an evolutionary framework to better understand the dynamics of human mating. What I love about the evolutionary approach is that it allows us to really understand the motives of our actions and why we behave the way we do. Evolutionary psychology lets us look at human emotion, cognition, and behavior through a historic lens, and so we can understand how the environments of our far past shaped us to what we are today, and how, in our modern world, certain evolved tendencies may no longer serve us and may seem maladaptive, but really, for the majority of human history, they had a very purposeful function. So by studying human mating and sexual conflict through the evolutionary lens, we can take a hard look at the darker sides of human sexuality, from cheating and deception to outright sexual assault, and to ask, why in the world do these behaviors exist? What was the evolutionary purpose and benefit of these behavioral tendencies? And how can understanding the evolutionary background of these drives help us overcome them and evolve past them? David has devoted his career to understanding the full scope of human mating and his commitment to discovering the truths at the core, even in the most dangerous and taboo of topics, is exceptional. And in my opinion, true understanding must occur before change can take place. So now, let's talk about what happens when men behave badly. David Buss, it's great to talk to you today. And before we dive into your new book, Why Men Behave Badly, I wanted to set the stage in terms of what is evolutionary psychology. And I think it's important to understand the evolutionary framework as a lens that allows us to explore the ultimate causes of our psychological makeup today, why we are the way we are. Because looking at evolution helps us put our behaviors, thoughts, and emotions all into a much broader historical context of deep time, where over thousands and thousands of years, certain human traits were better for survival. And so the humans who survived were precisely the ones with those traits. And the psychological operating system we have today has essentially come to be because of this long dance with natural selection. So can you tell us how you would define evolutionary psychology? And what do you think most people misunderstand about this framework? Well, that was a very eloquent summary. (laughs) Yeah, so evolutionary psychology is basically psychology informed by an evolutionary perspective. And what that means is there are two key ingredients there. One is the causal origin of whatever psychological mechanisms or adaptations we have. And I'll get into some detail about those in natural and sexual selection. And the second and critical component that an evolutionary perspective adds is function. That is, what is the evolved function of our psychological adaptations? So just by analogy to the body, 
if you were, let's say, a medical researcher studying the liver, and you asked, what is the function of the liver? And the liver researcher said, well, I don't care about what the function is. Well, we would view that as an impoverished or inadequate understanding of the liver. You have to understand the function of the liver because that informs you about how it's designed, what it does when it goes wrong, when something goes wrong with it. And the same logic applies to psychology. So just as in the body, we have a a liver, heart, lungs, kidneys, eyes, ears, and so forth. We have psychological mechanisms that also have evolved functions. And so evolutionary psychology develops hypotheses about the causal origins of our psychology and their adaptive functions. And this is very much in contrast to a blank slate view term popularized, uh, well, it goes back to ancient philosophy, but popularized Mm -hmm. by Steve Pinker's wonderful book, uh, The Blank Slate, where a key assumption of many social scientists is that humans come into this world just with a blank slate upon which parents, cultures, and so forth write the script. And it's very clear that that view is wrong. Of course, some people deny adhering to it, even though they implicitly do. So you have to look at people's implicit assumptions. So to get into a little bit of detail on those two key issues, causal origins and evolved functions, causal origins start with natural selection, which Darwin originally conceived of as survival selection. And the logic was that characteristics that led organisms to survive, those organisms lived to reproductive age, and so then they mated, reproduced, and then passed on the adaptations or qualities that led to their survival. And so in the case of humans, we have an astonishing variety of these that are well-known, some less well-known, some more well-known, but for example, fears. We have evolved fears, darkness, strangers, spiders, snakes, heights, you know, that is hazards that really could shorten your life pretty dramatically over evolutionary time. And so it's people don't have, for example, fears of cars, which are currently more dangerous to us. So this is an example of a a mismatch in a way that, you know, evolution is a slow process. And so we are evolved to deal with adaptive problems that our ancestors faced, but not necessarily the modern adaptive problems. But Darwin was very puzzled or troubled, I should say, by phenomena that couldn't be explained by the so-called survival selection. And things were like the brilliant plumage of peacocks was one, Mm -hmm. sexual dimorphism, why do males and females of many species differ in size, shape, morphology, since they both face the same survival problems, why would they differ? And why would different species vary in the magnitude of sexual dimorphism that they faced? And so these phenomena like the plumage of peacocks and and many other bird species and the massive antlers on elk and so forth really troubled darwin he said even the sight of a peacock gives me nightmares <laughs> you know he he was troubled by this and so uh, he was actually a very good uh, scientist in that he had a tendency to ig- ignore or forget facts that were inconsistent with his theory so he developed a separate notebook and forced himself to write it down so he would be forced to confront them theoretically. Wow. And so the end result was this, something I try to teach my students to do. Yeah. Because we all, we all like our pet hypotheses, but we, you know. Right, when have, something doesn't make sense. Yeah. So many scientific discoveries have been like that, where something just cannot be explained by existing theory, and that leads to 
a novel and a breakthrough theory. And in Darwin's case, the breakthrough theory was the theory of sexual selection. So sexual selection deals not with the evolution of characteristics by virtue of their survival advantage, but rather by virtue of their mating advantage. Right. And Darwin identified two causal processes by which mating advantage could occur. One is intrasexual competition or same-sex competition. Logic, the stereotyping, two stags locking horns in combat. The victor gains sexual access to the female. Loser ambles off with a broken antler, dejected, low (laughs) self-esteem, needing psychotherapy or whatever. (laughs) But the logic is very simple but very powerful. So whatever qualities lead to success in these same-sex contests, those get passed on in greater numbers because of the sexual access that the victors gain. Qualities associated with losing these battles basically bite the evolutionary dust. So this component is more general, so of same-sex competition. So Darwin identified it primarily with what's called contest competition, where there are these physical battles. But the logic is more general. So there's scramble competition, for example, to acquire a good territory or resources, or in the human case, a status. So we evolved in small groups. All groups have status hierarchies, position and status hierarchy. So, you know, people compete for position and status hierarchy, which gives you access to a uh, volume of reproductively relevant resources. So that's intrasexual competition. The second component, the causal process Darwin identified is inter or between the sexes selection. And the logic of this is that if members of one sex have some consensus about the qualities they desire in members of the opposite sex, and those qualities they desire have some heritable heritability to them, then those who possess the desired qualities have a mating advantage. That is, they get selectively chosen, preferred, etc. And those lacking the desired qualities get shunned or experience lower mating success or in the modern world become incels. Right. <laughs> right. And we're going to get into that as well. So we have these two forces, right? These certain traits help us survive, and therefore we, we see them more and more. And certain traits are what we would call attractive, and therefore, right, in terms of if you're stronger or higher status, then you're more, more likely to be selected. And then we have these two forces working together. And I think also one of the things you mentioned that's important to highlight is that Some of these behaviors today or these drives or instincts aren't adapted for today's environment. And they might even seem bizarre and unexplainable because they go against our modern morality. But understanding them in this evolutionary context gives them an explanation for why they came to be. Yes. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. So there are, I think, two points embedded in your question or point. One is the mismatch. So the circumstances under which we evolved differ dramatically from the modern environment. And so, and that's evolution is a theory about change over time. And so there's nothing that requires that things remain static. In fact, nothing does remain static. But the second point is that has to do with um, morality and that evolution, and some people don't like this, in fact, has produced some things that we regard as abhorrent. And we can get into those, but they include things like forms of aggression, even infanticide under certain circumstances. And in this sense, evolution is an amoral process in that it it just 
mechanistically produces things that lead to survival and reproductive success, regardless of the morality or judgment about whether this is a good or bad thing. And so it's very important to distinguish what is from what ought to be or right. what evolved from our standards of morality. Right. And I think when these things, you know, come up against our morality today, it's important to know where they came from and why they evolved. And that doesn't excuse them, but it does give an explanation for why we see these behaviors still. So in your book, you lay out all sorts of reasons for sexual conflict between the sexes from minor to extreme cases. But what we see is that there are inherent built-in differences between how men and women perceive sex and relationships. And these differences can oftentimes lead to conflict. So can you start by telling us about the experiment with the Confederates and the three questions and what you learned about the differences between men and women from there? Sure. And I should say this, that research was not I didn't conduct that research. Mm. I've done a lot of research, but I didn't do that one. A uh, very clever study. Probably you wouldn't be able to get it by the um, ethics committee to, <laughs> to do nowadays. But um, When was it? When did it uh, well, the first one appeared in 1989, and then it's okay. been replicated multiple times, including about half a dozen European cultures. So okay. what they did is basically, it was very clever. So they had people simply walk up to members of the opposite sex so they were called confederates or members of the experimental team, walk up to members of the opposite sex and they say, hi, I've been noticing you around lately. I find you very attractive. They would ask them one of three questions. Would you go out on a date with me? Would you come back to my apartment with me? Would you have sex with me? And they simply recorded the percentage of individuals who agreed to these three different requests. It was what's called a between groups design. So different mm -hmm. people were asked different questions, not all three. And so of the women approached in this first study, about 50% agreed to go out on the date with the guy, 6% agreed to go back to his apartment, and 0% agreed <laughs> to have sex. And women in the sex condition thought it was a kind of a peculiar thing. Most women need a little more information about <laughs> a guy rather than, hi, well, let's have sex. Of the men approached, also about 50% agreed to go out on the date with the woman who posed the question. 69% agreed to go back to her apartment, and 75% agreed to have sex with her. So uh, for those who doubt that men and women differ in their sexual psychology, I would just draw your attention to this these very dramatic yeah. sex differences. And even of the 25% of the men who declined, several were apologetic about it, uh, <laughs> citing a a girlfriend, a fiancé, or parents in town and asking for a phone number and a rain check. Uh, <laughs> Whereas some women were offended by the sex question, men were typically flattered by the sex question. Right, right. Probably never happened to them in their lives. Right. No, so that just goes to show the huge difference of how, how we perceive these things. And just in terms of the outrage that the last question created in women, a lot of times men might think that uh, sexual advance is simply flattering, where for women... It doesn't seem that way. Now, where does a man's need for sexual variety come from, from an evolutionary perspective? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's, it's a need. I would say it's a desire. Okay. So, you know, need is something, uh, this is perhaps splitting hairs, but like you need food, you need air. You, there are certain things you need. You need not to be bitten by poisonous snakes. <laughs> but desire, I think this desire for sexual variety and what I mean by that is desire for a variety of different partners. 
This is one of the largest psychological sex differences, period, and one of the largest effect sizes in the entire field of psychology. So over the next, let's say, five or 10 years, men desire 8, 10, 12 partners. Some desire 100, some desire 1,000. Women say, you know, one in the next month would, you know, actually eight-tenths in the next month, <laughs> one in the next couple of years, and, and they level out at four to five in the lifespan. So importantly, okay. it's not zero and it's not one, although there are individual differences. A lot of people do put one. So women also have, some women have some desire for sexual variety. And this is actually, this is one of these things where there's a major gap in cross-sex understanding. Where, you know, sometimes I'll talk to women, I'll say, they'll say, well, I, I have a desire for sexual variety. I, I'm attracted to, I, I don't know, Brad Pitt, Ryan Gosling, you know, whatever. But it is nowhere near men's desire. So uh, recently I had an 85-year-old man email me after reading my new book. And he said, he said, I'm 85 years old, probably has no sex life whatsoever. He said, but every day when I walk down the street, I'm tortured <sighs> by the women who pass by and I, my brain punishes me by causing me to evaluate their sexual attractiveness. And so this is, it's not a blessing <laughs> to, have these, to have these desires that can, for 99.9% .9 of the men, can never possibly be met. But men find themselves sexually attracted to a much larger variety of women. So the, the why is, has to do with asymmetries in parental investment. And this was Trevor's Brilliant Insight, 1972, Robert Trevor's Theory of Parental Investment and Sexual Selection, where he asked the question, what drives the two components of sexual selection that I identified earlier? And his answer was magnitude of parental investment. So the sex that invests more tends to be more choosy or discriminating or selective about who they mate with. The sex that invests less tends to be more competitive with members of their own sex for sexual access to the high investing sex. So in the human case, women have a much higher, what's called obligatory parental investment. So that's the right. nine-month pregnancy. And it's obligatory. Women can't say, I really am busy with my career. I only <laughs> want to put in two and a half months. It's part of our reproductive biology to produce a single child. Uh, men, that minimum obligatory is basically one act of conceptive sex. And then, of course, there's subsequent investment, which would have been obligatory ancestrally, namely lactation or breastfeeding, which typically would last two to four years in ancestral environments. So what that means is that the payoff of different mating strategies differed over evolutionary time for the sexes, where the primary limitation on a male's reproductive success would have been the number of fertile women that he could gain sexual access to. And sky's the limit in principle. Whereas for women, adding additional sex partners doesn't really increase her reproductive success, unless perhaps she had an infertile partner, then adding an additional one might help. And then there are also certain conditions, certain theories, uh, which we can get into later, that suggest that there are in indeed are some advantages to women pursuing mates other than their primary mate, and perhaps even pursuing multiple mates. But the sex difference is enormous. And so that evolutionary cause, recurrent generation after generation, is what led to this massive sex difference in desire for sexual variety. Right. It's at the core, this parental investment uh, difference here. It's at the core of the differences of men and women and their attitude towards sex and 
I think misunderstanding that can lead to a lot of conflict. Where have you seen that these misunderstandings of the difference can create conflict between men and women? Yeah, well, it starts, uh, the conflict starts on the mating market, goes into relationships, and then even occurs in the aftermath of breakups. So, So on the mating market, for example, what you have is the most frequent circumstances, a man is pursuing a short-term mating strategy, wants casual sex, a brief hookup, and the woman's looking for a long-term mate. And so you see a vivid illustration of that is on Tinder, which apparently, although some representatives from Tinder do not deny this, but some claim that as many as 30% of the people on of the men on Tinder are in fact married or in relationships. And so they're looking for something on the side. So what you get is, uh, so that's, this is a mating market conflict, what you get is uh, deception. So men feign long-term interest. They give off cues to long-term interest, exaggerate the depth of their commitment, exaggerate the similarity of their interests, and even sometimes say, I love you, and I'm falling in love with you. Or, you, know, you do the, give all the signals of long-term when they're really interested in short-term. And this is kind of a diabolical strategy because basically what it means is that men often use the same tactics of attraction for both long-term and short-term. And so women have to distinguish between whether the guy is interested in long-term or or short-term. So that occurs in the mating market. Once you're in a relationship, it occurs in the form of uh, infidelity. So Every study shows that there's a sex difference in infidelity. More men than women commit infidelity. Kinsey, back, I guess now, close to 70, 75 years ago, put it at about 50% of married men haven't commit infidelity at some point in their marriage and about 26% of women. And some studies put the gap not that large, but it's also the case that men who do cheat do so with a larger number of partners. That is, they tend to be serial cheaters. Okay. Whereas with, with women, it's more they might have one partner with whom they become emotionally involved rather than cheating with every opportunity that they possibly can. Right, right. So the cheating happens in a kind of different way. And also the reasons why men and women cheat are also a bit different, right? Yes, profoundly different. I should say that when we talk about sex differences, and I put this in the beginning of my book, mm-hmm. that we're talking about on average sex differences. Right. Because right. there's overlap in the distributions. And of course, there are some women who have, quote, a male-like sexual psychology and some men who have a, quote, female-like sexual psychology. So, so we're talking about on average differences. And I just, the reason, the reason I put that at the beginning of the book so I wouldn't have to repeat it every time I right, talk right. about a sex difference. Right, right. But it's an, important, it's an important note to make. To yes. Me. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So for men, the studies of the motives for getting into affairs, uh, something like 70% say the opportunity presented itself, desire for sexual variety, sleeping with a woman that I never slept with. So some basically a sexual motivation. Women, in contrast, some put a sexual motivation, but it's more like 30 35%. Many more put, I became emotionally involved with someone else. I fell in love with someone else. And so for men, it looks like it's an expression of desire for sexual variety, primarily, although some men also do the mate switching. But for women, I argue in my book that it's that the mate switching hypothesis is probably the most cogent hypothesis for why women have affairs. That is, they're 
They have affairs when they're unhappy with a relationship emotionally or sexually. You may say that's totally obvious, but men, if you look at men, there's no difference between married men who have affairs and those who don't in terms of their marital happiness. They can be perfectly happy with their partner, perfectly in love with their partner, and still express, have that desire for sexual variety on the side. Interesting. So women who cheat are most likely kind of on the way out of the relationship in, in their head, right? They're, yes. they're ready to leave that relationship. And men aren't necessarily looking to leave the relationship at all. It's just something on the side. Right, right, exactly. And, and that's why, I mean, when you, um, you know, you get to when the infidelity is discovered, there are very different reactions to that, you know, where if a man gets discovered by his wife cheating, she wants, one of the first questions she asks is, are you in love with her? Right. You know, they want to know about that emotional involvement. And men's first question is, did you have sex with him? Or actually, they say, did you fuck him? The- right. That's usually, that's usually <laughs> if, if they're that upset, they're going to use a <laughs> right. coarser language. No, but I think that's an important note as well, because the emotional infidelity is a lot more of a betrayal for women, right? To discover that their partner is emotionally involved with another woman. But for men, it's actually a sexual infidelity. If, if she has an emotional friend on the side, then it's less of an issue. Yeah. And so, and this gets back to an earlier point that we were talking about, which is evolved function. And so the emotion of sexual jealousy is what's critical here. And the sexes differ in that. So the adaptive problem that men would have faced is uncertainty of paternity. And this occurs as a result of internal female fertilization. So mm-hmm. women are always 100% sure they are the mothers. Men can never be sure. So some cultures use the phrase, mama's baby, papa's maybe, <laughs> to kind of capture this asymmetry. And so that's why male sexual jealousy focuses so intensely on whether she had sex you know, mm-hmm. with someone else, because that's historically, over evolutionary deep time, that's, that would have endangered his certainty that he's the genetic father, which is, would be very costly, especially if he's investing in the children, which in the modern case is a couple of decades or even more with boomerang kids could be four decades. But for women, the primary danger is that he will stop investing in her and rechannel his investments, attention, resources, interests to another woman and her children. And so that's why, and love, are you in love with her? That's why it's a critical component because men do tend to leave when they're in love with someone else and they do some mate switching. But back to the summarize, that point is that mate switching, I think, is the primary evolved function of affairs for women and expressing desire for sexual variety or acting on that is the primary function for males. Although I should also point out that this is one area where I disagree with some of my evolutionary psychology colleagues. So, um, why on the mate switching issue? So, the dominant view, or, or at least to, over the past twenty years or so, has been that women have affairs in order to get good genes. So mm. they pursue what my colleagues Marty Hazelton, former student of mine, and Steve Gangestead, Randy Thornhill call a dual mating strategy. That is, they get investment from one guy the good dad, the reliable provider, and they get good genes, like genes for good health or sexy son genes from another guy, the sexy, attractive guy down the block. And I actually 
thought this sounded quite reasonable, and there's some evidence in support of it, although it's a lot shakier than those who advocate the dual mating strategy hypothesis would imply. And if you ask the question, why do most women have affairs? I think that the mate switching hypothesis is a much more parsimonious explanation. There may be some women, of course, they're not mutually incompatible. It could be that some women do pursue this dual mating strategy. But given the costs of infidelity for women, the dangers that it poses to them in male violence, uh, even homicide. So just to give a concrete figure to that, when an adult woman is killed, the odds are somewhere around 50 to 70% that it was a husband, boyfriend, ex-husband, or ex-boyfriend who is acting out of sexual jealousy or that the woman has dumped them. If an adult male is killed, the odds of him being killed by a former romantic partner or current are 3%. So infidelity puts women in great danger. And so the issue is, what is worth risking that danger? And what are the benefits that might outweigh those risks? So divesting herself of a bad partner or a cost-inflicting partner or a suboptimal partner, that is a big benefit. And transitioning, trading up in the mating market or trading to the mating market. Whereas obtaining slightly incrementally better genes for her offspring. Seems risky, too much work. (laughs) is 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 that really worth it? And in fact, I mean, in now in modern environments, the rates of genetic cuckoldry, so that is the actual genetic father is different from the mm-hmm. putative father, are about 1% to 3% in modern environments. Now, it's possible, there is cultural variation on that. It's possible they were higher in ancestral environments. And so it's possible that more women ancestrally were pursuing this kind of dual mating strategy. But I think the weight of the evidence, if you look at all of it, and I assemble some of it in, in my new book, points to the mate switching as the dominant reason why women have affairs. Okay. And, you know, you said about 50% of men cheat. Is that right? That's what Kinsey put it at. Some studies, it's, of course, a very fraught topic. People don't want to talk about it. I and mean, even in Kinsey's time, it was the single question that most people refused to answer um, okay. or decided, hey, I want to back out of this study. Yeah. It's a hard <laughs> thing to get at. It depends on the method, the technique, the experimenter, is the anonymity guaranteed, et cetera. So it no, depends on a lot of things. So this, the actual numbers bounce around all over the place. But, but just in general, there are men who cheat and there are those that don't. So what have you found are the characteristics of men who cheat? Is there anything that you've seen there? Yes. Yeah. So, well, this gets us into differences in mating strategy and the dark triad, personality traits. So some men are dispositionally more inclined, and some women, but more men than women, are dispositionally inclined to pursue a short-term mating strategy. That is a strategy where they have a very high sex drive and they want to act on it. And so if you combine that with uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy, those are the three dark triad traits, that's a deadly combination for infidelity. And then we'll talk about later sexual harassment and sexual coercion. So that's one set of men who do it. But the other is a circumstance of the relationship, and that's a mm-hmm. mate value discrepancy. Okay. So if the man perceives that he's higher in mate value, so if he thinks he's an eight and his regular partner is a six, 
he feels entitled to use that excess mate value to sex on the side. Okay, so mate value discrepancy. So can you explain to us what exactly is mate value and what are the characteristics that men and women are looking for in a mate? So that's a big question. So (laughs) uh, to reverse the order of that, so what men and women look for in a mate, it depends on whether they're looking for a short-term mate or a long-term mate. So those qualities differ. But in long-term mating, men and women look for many of the same characteristics. They want a partner who's intelligent, healthy, dependable, emotionally stable, adaptable, good sense of humor, many characteristics they have in common. Where they differ, where the sexes differ, is that men place a greater priority on physical appearance, physical attractiveness, good looks, and youth, relative youth. And women place a greater priority on status, resources, status trajectory, resource trajectory. Is this guy going somewhere? Does he have drive? Is he ambitious? Is he well-respected by his peers? So the kind of resource and status cluster versus the attractiveness, physical attractiveness, and youth cluster. Those are the sex differences. And and these also make very good evolutionary sense and had been hypothesized in advance of their discovery. So in fact, I tested those hypotheses. They'd been around for a while. I tested them for the first time in my 37 culture study, uh, which included Israel, by the way. Okay. I had, uh, I had both um, Jewish Israelis and Palestinian Israelis in the sample, a pretty decent sample. I'm still in touch with my Israeli collaborator, by the way. Oh, yeah. Uh, on that. Um, so, who, who was it? Uh, it's uh, Marilyn Safir. Okay. And there were a couple others. So when I was a graduate student, I had an Israeli professor at Berkeley who I was a teaching assistant for. He was just a visiting professor. And then he went back to Israel and I think became like a provost or some somebody <laughs> high up in the administration. And so he was put me into contact with people who could who could collect data from Israel on that. So what we found is so mm-hmm. so in terms of the adaptive function, so this gets back to the issue of identifying fertile females. So, which is the main constraint. I mean, you have to identify fertile females before you can try to have sex with them. And so physical appearance, which physical attractiveness used to be, and I was taught when I was an undergraduate, is totally in the eyes of the beholder, is (laughs) infinitely cross-culturally variable, et cetera. And there is some cross-cultural variability in it, but there are also universal standards of attractiveness. And for women, they boil down to cues to health, cues to youth, cues to fertility. Right. Uh, And what are these cues? Clear skin, full lips, symmetrical features, lustrous hair, good fitness, good body tone. Um, You can even tell someone's age, for example, walking down the street by just their gait, Hmm. you know, where younger people have a more sprightly gait and older people kind of have this more shuffling along (laughs) kind of view. So, you know, energy level, things like that. And then there are some more subtle things like a low waist-to-hip ratio. So if you measure your waist and then the circumference of your hips, a low ratio of waist-to-hips is a cue to fertility as well. Right. It like shows the different hormonal levels, right? Like estrogen, progesterone, and things like that. Yeah. It's linked to hormones like estrogen, but it's also linked to age. So waist-to-hip ratio in women increases with increasing age. And it's also linked to things like um, certain health problems, certain endocrinological problems will cause high waist ratio, and 
pregnancy, of course, will cause high waist-to-waist ratio. And for women, from women's perspective, women also need to identify fertile mates, but it's less of a problem. It would have been less of a problem for our ancestral mothers simply because male fertility is much less sharply age-constrained. Males who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, and sometimes 70s can sometimes do reproduce. They They do remain fertile, although sperm quality does decline and there are other issues associated with that. But women's fertility is much more compressed into a smaller number of years. Right. And then from women's perspective, and so that's why men, you know, you could say it's so superficial that men value (laughs) physical appearance, how crass and superficial. And in some sense, perhaps it is, but it's, there's an evolutionary rationale for why they do. Right. Um, There's a reason that certain things are perceived as attractive because they signal that the woman is healthier. She is able to reproduce, right? So it's not just the superficial Right. Kind of uh, right. men. Men are obsessed with looks. There's there's a reason behind it. And on the flip side, yeah. And on the flip side, I mean, you think of an ancestral woman. What problems would she faced fa- have faced in long term mating? Well, she wants to identify a mate who's going to invest in her and her children, invest resources, invest parenting, etc. And you may think, well, you know, in the modern environment, this is one of these mismatches. You think, well, you know, women have their own careers, they can get their own food, you go down the grocery store and get food. But ancestrally, that wasn't the case. You had to get your own food, and it was scarce. And so you had to hunt, you had to gather, and there were droughts, there were harsh winters where there were no berries that were blooming. And so a man, a mate who could provide resources, let's say he was a good hunter, could provide resources, may would have made the difference between survival and death to a woman and her children compared to a woman who, let's say, made it with a guy who's a slacker and just wanted to hang out in the hammock all day and <laughs> smoke some, you know, whatever the local hallucinogen right. was in the environment. Consciousness-altering a substance <laughs> of, of the day. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I think this is also an important note to mention here, that certain things in different times over, you know, human history have provided more resources. And what I mean is, back in the day, a man who was stronger and was able to hunt better was, you know, higher status because he was able to provide more resources. But today, we're not necessarily looking for the strongest guy. There's different things, different qualities that make someone able to provide resources today. Yes, absolutely. There's a mismatch. So, I mean, one example that, you know, uh, I inhabit academic environments. So, I mean, I've been in universities for most of my life. And so, but if I go into a faculty meeting, for example, and slap down a, an elk that I just <laughs> that wouldn't increase my status in the department. You know, right. so the, the things that lead to high status are, did you get a, a big grant? Did you have a prestigious publication? Or did the book get well-reviewed in a prestigious outlet? Etc. These are the things, or is your research cited a lot in Google Scholar citation? These are things that lead to status in academic hierarchies. So hunting skills are irrelevant, may even be looked down upon in academics. But one of the things, you know, to your point is that whereas 
we evolved in simpler times where hunting absolutely was critical. We evolved as hunters and gatherers. But in the modern environment, there are thousands and thousands of uh, niches that where people can attain status. You know, so even like your fantastic video game expert right. and have the highest score on whatever game your world of warcraft or whatever i don't <laughs> i don't play video games i don't know these things but or you're a high status tennis player or you're a, an artist or a poet i mean there's so many different or a successful business person so there are so many different ways to achieve status now whereas ancestrally there would have been fewer ways and you're absolutely right that physical prowess athletic prowess would have been much more important ancestrally. Now, I think it's still not irrelevant today in that women still go for guys. They're attracted to guys, for example, who have a high shoulder-to-hip ratio. Okay. So broad shoulders relative to the hips who are physically fit, look like they can, they're athletic, look like they could be good protectors. And so the protection is another thing. It's not just providing, is that women historically needed protection especially from sexually aggressive men. And so having a mate who had both the physical qualities, but also the psychological qualities, like being brave in the face of danger, you know, stepping up when you need to, those would have been critical as well. Right. And how would you explain the bad boy paradox, right? Where certain women are still attracted to kind of bad boy archetype. Yeah. So the bad boy paradox. So this is guys who are arrogant, risk-taking, narcissistic, put themselves at the center of attention, do daring things, and uh, sometimes are callous with respect to women. So why are women, sometimes, some women are attracted to these guys, and especially young women, I should say. Okay. Uh, Younger, more than older women, who gain some experience and realize these guys are disastrous. As long-term mates. So, but they can be very exciting as short-term mates, in part because they possess many qualities that women do find attractive. So they tend to put themselves in the center of attention. Well, status is in part determined by the attention structure. That is the high status person is the person to whom the most people pay the most attention. And so these bad boys put themselves in the center of attention. They take risks, physical and social risks. So Telling a story to the group, for example, is a social risk. You know, you risk being incoherent or falling on your face, and or you risk, or you could gain a benefit of commanding the attention of the group and amusing them or making them laugh. So they have qualities that are associated with status. And also people think that if you take risks, then you have the, the goods to, to deliver. Af- to deliver, to <laughs> yeah. afford to be able to take those risks. And so they have many of the qualities that women find genuinely attractive. Okay, but they're disastrous as long-term mates because they tend to be, they tend to cheat on their partners. They tend to be narcissistic. And so they have overly inflated views of their intelligence, desirability, and uh, savvy. And they are very good at seduction and abandonment. And so they leave some broken hearts in their wake. So, and as I mentioned, so, and it's especially younger women who don't have a whole lot of experience on the mating market who are most attracted to these bad boys. Right. It's almost like the wires get crossed because some of these cues 
are supposed to signal that the guy is high status and attractive and can, you know, take care of himself and of you. But really, there's a lot of red flags that go into it. And I guess the less experienced you are, the more you can get confused and mistake these cues for someone who can actually deliver, um, yes. but not necessarily. But that's also uh, comforting to know that older women, they learn at some point that <laughs> these are not the kinds of guys that uh, you want to get involved with. I wanted to ask you about this overperception and underperception bias and how just this alone can lead to so much misunderstandings between the sexes. It's a fascinating topic. So the sexual overperception bias is the typical case is woman smiles at a man and a man thinks, oh, she's sexually or romantically interested in me or accidentally brushes up against his arm. He thinks, oh, she touched me. That must, <laughs> that's a sure, dead sure sign. And the woman, of course, smiles and touches might indicate interest, but they also might indicate just friendliness or politeness or could even indicate nervousness if the guy's a little creepy. Uh, right. So, Overly smiling just to, right. <laughs> just to get over the awkwardness of the guy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So men, the bottom line is that men tend to infer sexual interest when it's not there. And although some men are more susceptible to the sexual perception bias. So men who are high on narcissism mm. and men who pursue a short-term mating strategy are especially vulnerable to the sexual perception bias. So they think they're hot, but they're not. And the other thing is that men feel if they're attracted to a woman, they sometimes find it impossible to believe that that attraction is not reciprocated. And there are lots of cases like this. So not all men, some men are more susceptible than others, but there is an overall sex difference in that. Underperception bias is uh, women tend to underperceive sexual interests. So, and we discovered this in our lab study. This is led by a former graduate student of mine, Karen Perilu, who's now a professor. And what we found is something that we hadn't predicted this, but that women, that is, men and women brought them into the lab, they interacted, and then we separated them. And then they indicated, how interested are you in this person sexually, romantically? And how interested do you think they are in you sexually, romantically? And what we found is that Men were saying, oh, yeah, I'm, I am interested in her. And women were saying, no, he's not interested in me. I'm not getting any cues of interest. So oh, this wow. is sort of a, so both sexes err in sexual mind reading, mind reading the opposite sex. And why women underperceive is somewhat speculative. So one hypothesis is that, is that men conceal their sexual interests. And I think there's some merit to this. That is, it's a disastrous strategy that, hi, would you have sex with me? I find you sexually attractive. Let's have sex. It's a terrible strategy. You know? right. So it indicates short-term interest, uh, indicates, as I said, women need more information. Right. Need that more. might only work for Ryan Gosling and in some romantic <laughs> comedy movies, but right, right. <laughs> across the board, usually doesn't work. Right. For most men, no, <laughs> it, it, it totally backfires. So men might be sexually attracted to the woman, but intentionally suppress any signals of that. And so women, he didn't give any signals of sexual interest, so I guess he's not interested. So that's one hypothesis as to why. Another might be, and these aren't mutually incompatible, another might be that one problem that women face is deflecting unwanted sexual attention. Mm -hmm. So women get unwanted sexual attention 
from a variety of guys and not seeing it, so to speak, is one way of dealing with it. So Right. That I can understand. But I have my own hypothesis here where it seems like each of the sexes are we're just projecting our own kind of in terms of men usually have a much higher sex drive than women. And so they project that onto women. You know, they expect women to have just as much a sex drive. So they're thinking, okay, if she's smiling to me, that's probably sexual interest. But on the other hand, women aren't thinking about sex as much as men. So they're just kind of assuming that, oh, he's not, that's not going through his mind at all. I like your idea. And the way that I would phrase it is that people use their own sexual psychology as mm. the kind of default in inferring the sexual psychology of others. And this is a problem in, in that we're all stuck in the interior of our, of our own brains and our own minds. And so we can't ever know for sure what's going on in other people's minds. So we have to make inferences about it. And so using your own sexual psychology as a default in inferring the sexual psychology of others is a big mistake when it comes to cross-sex mind reading. And a classic example, uh, one that I also talk about in the book, is sending unwanted uh, photographs of genitals. So they're colloquially called dick pics. Right, right. And part of it, I think this is one of these mind-reading errors where men do find pictures of nude women and, you know, sort of disembodied body parts to be sexually attractive. And so they think, oh, women will find them attractive. And so, but women, most women don't. So <laughs> they say like, most women say like, gross. This is like, I, I don't want this to sort of. Yeah. What was he thinking? <laughs> yeah. 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 And so, and this is like one of these, like kind of illustrates the gulf of failure of cross-sex mind reading where men are, again, just as you said, using their own sexual psychology to infer the sexual psychology of others. Right, right. And I think just understanding these differences and, you know, the over-perception and the under-perception can help men and women get along a lot better. And just in terms of the workplace environment or things like that, or I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that the over-perception, under-perception bias got me thinking about was when Harry met Sally right? Where he tells her that men and women can't be friends and she doesn't understand why. And I was wondering if you've found anything in your research about platonic relationships between men and women. Yes. So this is um, yeah research that I conducted spearheaded by a form, another former graduate student of mine named April Blesky. April Blesky Raychek is her current name. And we had a paper called, Can Men and Women Be Just Friends? Okay. And what we found is, of course, the answer is, yes, they can. But men have more difficulty being just friends. And they have more difficulty because they become sexually attracted or romantically attracted to their opposite sex friend. And And when that attraction is not reciprocated, it sometimes causes either conflict or sometimes the ending of the of the friendship. And so men have more difficulty being just friends than women do. And, but part of one of the twists in that is this issue of backup mates. Right. That is, women sometimes cultivate opposite sex friendships as backup mates, should something befall their regular mateship. So there's backup mates, and there's also the element of having bodyguards, right? Having these intact relationships with 
different males. But let's get into the backup mates thing first. Why do people have backup mates? What is this phenomenon? Well, ancestrally and even currently, something could always go wrong with your current mateship. So the relationship could implode for a variety of reasons. Your partner could become alcoholic or addicted to drugs or get injured or get killed or dump you or, you know, there are all kinds of things. And these would have occurred ancestrally as well. In fact, from a female point of view, ancestrally, males risk getting killed at much higher rates than they do now. So a woman's husband, you know, in some cultures like the Anamama or the Gabusi, it's like 30% plus males get killed by other males. And so a lot of women then are, are left with no mate if that happens. So the, the backup mate notion is that women cultivate backup mates should something happen. So just like you have car insurance, like house insurance, if something bad happens to your house or car, you have mate insurance if something bad <laughs> happens to your mateship. And so I think it makes good evolutionary sense that women do cultivate backup mates. Right. And the modern version of that would be like in Friends where, who was it? It was Chandler and Monica, I think. Before they got married, they made a pact to when they're 40 and if they're both still single. I might be confusing the characters, but it was yeah, that yeah. it was that kind of idea of, you know, having someone as a backup. Okay, I wanted to ask you in terms of the dating market today and the culture of, you know, liberalism maybe around the dating culture today. What do you think the negative impact of that of having our attitudes are more lenient around, you know, casual sex and less committed relationships and less of an emphasis on monogamy? So what kind of dating market results from this, you know, from the playboys to incels? Okay. So mating in the modern world. Right. Uh, well, I think that it's a good question and, a, and requires a complex answer. So I'll try to be as brief and just highlight a couple of things on this. Um, I mean, one of the things is, so in the modern world, we have internet dating. Okay. And that's totally changed things in the sense that ancestrally, you would have encountered perhaps a few dozen, at most, potential mates in your lifetime. You know, we lived in small groups, and sometimes there was intergroup contact. Now we have thousands or millions of potential mates available to us. So one is this sort of um, what sometimes called decision paralysis, you know, where... If you, the paradox of choice. Yeah. And people always think, oh, there maybe might be someone just a little bit better around the corner, whereas ancestrally, you know... You have six, eight to choose from. You pick the best one of those and, and you're kind of done with it, perhaps. Or, and of course, your parents influence it. And that has both good and bad aspects. So one is it gives you access to potential mates that you would never meet in person in your day-to-day -day life, in your workplace or your friend network or even at bars. But the downside is this, yeah, the paradox of choice and, the, and decision paralysis. And then, of course, deception. You know, it's very difficult, more difficult to detect deception in online dating than it is in person. Because in person, you can read nonverbal cues and you can assess things like, you know, is this person, you know, not answering or do they have, a, you know, I don't know, a wedding ring on or whatever. Right, whatever. Right. But one thing that affects the, there are at least two other modern things that affect things like casual sex in the mating market. So one is, what's called the, the hookup culture, in, which occurs in modern campuses and then 
in urban settings and, and elsewhere. And part of this is driven by sex ratio imbalances. So when there's a surplus of women in the mating market, the whole mating system tends to shift more towards short-term mating. When there's a surplus of men, it shifts more toward long-term mating. Okay, but what's happening on college campuses, universities throughout, throughout most of the world, so certainly Western Europe, I don't know about Israel, but Canada, North America, South America, is there are more women going to college, more women going to universities, more women getting higher degrees. And part of that is that there are fewer or no barriers now in many cultures for women to doing that. Women tend to be more conscientious than men, like in in, uh, the lower grades in high school. And so they get better grades. They're, in fact, more qualified to get in. And so there's so at my university, there's about 54 percent women. And what does that make? Forty six percent men. Texas Christian University up near Dallas, it's uh, 60% women, 40% men. And the exceptions are engineering schools where mm-hmm. you still find a predominance of men. But so what that means is the rarer sex is in a better position to implement their mating strategy, their preferred mating strategy. And so we know that men have a stronger motivation for casual sex than women on average. And so when there's a surplus of women, that means that basically women are forced to compete for a smaller pool of men, and they compete by sexualizing their appearance and offering sex sooner than they would otherwise be inclined to, to do it. So I gave a talk at this Texas Christian University, so where there's the 60-40 balance, and, the, and I talked to the undergraduate women there, and they said things like that a guy who's normally a five on the mating market would be an eight at Texas Christian University. And so, and then I talked to guys, I talked to some guys who had formerly attended this university and they get this kind of glazed look in their eyes as they <laughs> fondly remember this one time in their life where they had high mate value and, oh, and, wow. and kind of unprecedented access to, to women. <laughs> so the sex ratio is important. And then I think, and this is, so those are solid and, and we know this, we see this in a variety of cultures and even over time when there's a surplus of women things shift more toward short-term mating but also there's an unknown effect of uh, pornography on this so kids growing up and even from a very young age have access to online pornography which i think tampers with male sexual psychology in a couple of ways one is that they it tricks their psychology into thinking that there are there's an abundance of sexually willing women out in the world who will have sex after meeting for 15 seconds. That's what male pornography is often like. There's no... Right, a man walks in the door. then right, right. And then, yeah, there's no, no context, no emotional involvement, no psychological intimacy, none of these... No, the um, woman was really just waiting for the man to arrive all day. <laughs> right, right. And she's immediately sexually aroused, excited, infinitely orgasmic, uh, and... So forth. So that's sort of on the one side. So men's sexual psychology may be tricked into thinking that there is this abundance of willing women. They may spend their time looking at pornography rather than interacting with real women. And this might decrease their ambition. Right. Or doing things that will increase their status. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And so that's why I wrote an essay, and I talk about it in, in my new book as well, about the what I call the mating crisis among educated women, where you have this 
problem where there are more educated women than men and women are more selective on precisely those attributes. That is, women don't like to long-term mate with guys who are less intelligent, less educated, less successful, or have lower status than they do. Right. That's that's an important note here because women do look, you know, across their kind of attractiveness rating and up, right? Yes. So women women usually try to find mates with higher mate value than them or the same mate value, while men will look for women who have the same mate value and sometimes lower than. Right. And this gets back to your earlier question about what is mate value and what are the components? And so we never kind of close that that loop. Yeah. But physical appearance, because of the sex difference in mate preferences, this leads to sex differences in the components of mate value. So where physical appearance is a more important component of women's mate value than men's mate value, whereas a man's status, resources, position, relative rank are more important to a man's mate value. And so what that means is that Men are are much more willing to mate with women who are less educated, less intelligent than they are, especially if she's physically attractive. Right. But the same isn't true for women. Same is not true for women. You know, and that's why you see, uh, I had, I was looking at, um, you know, I mean, studying mating, I like to look at mate chefs, but I was looking at this one rock star and I can't even remember his name, but it was just stunning. This guy is, forgive the phrase, but he was butt ugly. (laughs) <laughs> uh, really ugly. Okay, if you saw him down the street, if you didn't know who he was or what he did, you got, this guy is a real, real low mate value. Okay, but his wife is this like drop dead gorgeous model. Well, it turns out he's a famous rock star who wrote this big hit, you know, back in the day or whatever. But you just see him. You can just see this. So whenever you see a guy who is not very attractive with a woman who is stunningly attractive. The odds are he's got these other things going. For right. Him. Very high status and <laughs> some sort of niche. No, there's always, you know, that stereotype, like that cliche where you see a man and a woman and the woman is clearly much more attractive and you're thinking, what's going on there? But really, really, there's an explanation for it. So in terms of also this, um, you know, dating culture today, I think an important note here is that the fact that men can engage in, you know, more short-term mating strategies creates this, and and the fact that women are looking for men who are higher status creates this uneven distribution, right? Where we're seeing that the top maybe 20 percentile of men have access to almost all of the women. And then women kind of have to settle for these uncommitted relationships a lot of times. And then there's a huge percentage of men who want to find a mate and aren't very successful at it when we have this kind of, you know, hookup culture. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's very eloquently stated. Yeah. That women tend to be attracted. So this is, find this on dating sites that women tend to be attracted to the top 20% or so of the guys on the site who then get the, the large volume of attention. And so again, this creates for them a sex ratio imbalance. They, they are the rarer sex. And so they can have sex with a variety of women and see no, no reason to commit prematurely. But then at the, at the other end, so this leads a large volume of women competing for a small pool of men, but then leaves uh, the incels 
Right. So, and what, what are incels for people so, who don't know? Uh, incels are involuntarily celibate. So that's where the acronyms comes from. Involuntarily celibate men in this case. And there are articles written of the rage of the incels and, you know, right. and it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, what's new is them getting together in online forums, uh, but, <laughs> but the phenomenon is not new. Go back to Jim Morrison of The Doors, who has a, this lyric, women seem wicked when you're unwanted, oh. you know, and kind of captures that essence of that. So, I mean, in extreme cases, these guys are become serial killers. So like there was the famous case in Santa Barbara, the Isla Vista killer who killed three people and wrote this manifesto, which is highly esteemed by the insult community of, he says, like, since I hit puberty, I've been attracted to these women and they just don't give me the time of day. They have no attraction and I'm infinitely tired of this. And and they hate the women who spurn them. And they also hate the men who women are attracted to. So, and they even have terms for these, like they call the women... Stacy's and they call the men chads oh wow you know and they despise both of these and so that like the in this uh isla vista killer killed both men and women and some of course are extremely misogynistic and direct their hostility toward women but it gets back to that issue women seem wicked when you're unwanted the advice i try to give to this group is for to get rid of your hostility work on your mate value you know because you can improve your mate value you know you can hygiene for example this is another sex difference women have a more acute sense of smell than men and men's are like they're not they're oblivious to if they they don't they don't they they stink their house is a mess or you know they haven't washed the dishes in a week or whatever i mean there, there are things you can do hygiene becoming more dependable achieving more in your work there are all kinds of things you can do to improve your mate value that's one issue there the other issue is that there's a sex difference in spectrum disorders. So autism autism and things like that. They're called spectrum disorders where, and one of the key components is a deficit in mind reading ability and kind of- Cognitive empathy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to correctly understand the, the thoughts, desires, and emotions of the person you're interacting with. And so men are- more like that on average. And so that's part of the problem with the incels is they they lack the social skills due to this mind reading deficit, the social skills to have interesting interactions with the women that they're attracted to. But those two can be developed. I mean, these these are everyone can improve their skills. I mean, there are some things you can't change. Your height, you know, you're stuck with how tall you are or short you are. But many things can be improved. Right. There's, I think, the fact that whenever there is any hostility or resentment within you, it's important to look at what can I actually do to change the situation? What control do I have? Because hostility and resentment never help anybody, right? right. You, never, you never actually get what you want through that avenue. So whatever the situation is, knowing that you can take some of the control back and work on yourself, whatever the situation is, right? But increasing your mate value and doing these small, simple things. And as you said, social skills as well. For the socially awkward, (laughs) it's definitely uh, good to know that those are skills that you can develop, even if uh, social interactions don't always uh, go so smoothly. Yeah, absolutely. And 
I just add one more to that is boldness. So that is some guys have what I call dating anxiety, mm-hmm. where they're attracted to women, but they just can't muster up the courage to actually talk to her. And so those, those can be overcome. So there's a, a famous psychologist who's, who's now dead, Albert Ellis, who developed a rationally emotive therapy, but he had this dating anxiety. And so he assigned him this, himself this task of asking 10 women a day out on dates. So he lived in New York City. So and he said, like, after a week, you know, and he got shot down by like 99.9%. Yeah. But after a week, his dating anxiety disappeared. Yeah, exposure yeah. therapy. Yeah, expo- <laughs> exactly. Exposure therapy. And so, and so even things like that, the kind of paralyzing anxiety that some men feel about interacting with women, that can be fixed as well. That's actually a very curable condition. Right. And I think it's important to know that it, really is something that women are looking for. Boldness and confidence is something that really will open a lot of doors. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, confidence is in part acute status. It shows that you're comfortable with yourself and you're relaxed with yourself and are not afraid to approach people. And that in itself is, is something that I think everyone is looking for. Now, I wanted to ask about this idea of mate guarding. And what are some of the common methods of mate guarding that you found, and which men are more likely to invest heavily in mate guarding? So mate guarding, so both men and women do mate guarding, or what I call mate retention tactics. Mm-hmm. So you, you know, long-term mating is something that you want to preserve. And you can't just say, okay, now I've selected the mate, they've selected me, now I can just go off and ignore everything. So we all have to do mate retention. And there are kind of positive and negative ways of doing that. So one is fulfilling the desires of the person that you are in a relationship with, being dependable, being interesting, having a sense of humor, bringing home resources, whatever the case is. And then on the flip side, there are kind of what I call cost infliction tactics of mate retention. So, And these occur either when there's a threat of infidelity or defection, or when the man lacks the benefits to provide the woman. So under these conditions, sometimes men engage in these cost infliction tactics, which can range from trying to undermine her self-esteem, so verbal abuse, psychological abuse, all the way to physical abuse or sexual abuse as as well, which occurs, we know now, in a non-trivial minority of uh, mating relationships. So one of the things, and this is uh, kind of, this is diabolical, but what I argue in the book is that abuse, domestic abuse, intimate partner violence is what it's called these days in the literature, actually has a function. And the function is a mate retention function where the man feels that he is um, on the cusp of losing the partner or experiences a mate value discrepancy. So let's say he loses his job, and so now he's a six and she's an eight. Well, we know statistically she's more likely to start looking around at that point. Uh, Mate switching. Mate switching. So, But if he can change her perception that she's an eight and get her to believe she's a six, then she might think, well, I'm actually, this is as good as I can do. And so what the physical abuse does and the psychological abuse by undermining the woman's self-esteem, causes her to think that she's lower in mate value than she actually is. Right. This cost infliction 
At first, when I heard that term, I was thinking, well, if the guy is inflicting costs, then that's even more of a reason to leave. But really, what happens is this intimate partner violence or the emotional abuse, you know, the verbal abuse, it can make a woman feel so, first of all, helpless, but also, you know, lesser than. So these things make her less likely to leave the relationship. Also, one of the important things here was the idea that men who are afraid of the woman leaving, they start to also tear away at her social relationships, right? And her ties to family. Can we talk about that and the idea of bodyguards and why they're important? Yeah. So the great way to ask the question, because the, the, <laughs> those elements are in fact very closely linked. So one of uh, women's most important defenses against things like intimate partner violence and sexual coercion of various sorts is the presence of bodyguards. So that is if the woman has allies, male allies, male friends, female allies, female friends, brothers, fathers who are just physically present, that deters these horrific actions. And, and, and we know this, there are studies of where even like the if a woman has kin in close proximity, there are lower rates of intimate partner violence, for example. A mother who's dropping by here and there, you know, to, yeah. to see how you're doing or something like that. Even. Yeah, exactly. So, and so I think bodyguards have always been important for women. And what the wife beater, to put it bluntly, does is one of the tactics is to try to cut off her relationships with her friends and her family, cut off those social ties. And so those are, that's one of the danger signals. So I mentioned a few danger signals, which don't invariably indicate higher likelihood of domestic violence, but statistically increase the odds. So mm-hmm. one is cutting off her relationships with friends or family. Two is undermining her self-esteem through verbal abuse or physical abuse. And the third is hyper-monitoring her time, like insisting on knowing where she is at all times, having her... She has to get permission to go to the grocery store, let him know when she's leaving the house, et cetera. So that hyper-monitoring of her time is another danger signal. So far as, you know, find my iPhone kind of a locator, knowing (laughs) knowing where she is at all times. I've I've heard of that as well. Yes. Um, And there was also the component of gaslighting. And what does that mean? So gaslighting occurs when someone tries to make in the in this case the woman make the woman believe that his version of reality is the true and only version of reality and that she can and so she comes to distrust her own perceptions of reality and actually stems from a movie called Gaslight uh, with uh, Ingrid Bergman a long long time ago where the husband basically tries to make the woman think that she's going insane because he does things like tampers with the light bulbs and she sees the light bulbs flickering, and he says, no, you must be imagining things. The light bulbs aren't flickering at all. And so over time, this wears her down, and she thinks she's going crazy. Yeah, losing her mind. (laughs) Yeah. And that's very, I think that's very common in in these kinds of jealous relationships where a guy can use that tactic to make you feel like you're going crazy, and then you really don't trust yourself anymore and trust your own judgment in leaving the relationship. Yeah, very insidious. Right. So this idea of bodyguards, this idea also just of having 
healthy, intact relationships with other men, like your father, brothers, or male friends, and how this can be a protector for intimate partner violence, but also that I think one of the things you found is that women who have had healthier relationships with, for instance, brothers, father, or or just grew up around males have less of a likelihood of finding themselves in, you know, sexual assault cases or the like. And what truth is there to that? Yeah. Actually, I don't know of any studies on on that, looking at that developmental antecedent, potential antecedent of sexual assault. What I do know is that we've looked at, you know, in the book I call the uh, title is under sexual exploitability, where some women are more sexually exploitable than others. And so there are certain cues, and this is why I think it's important for women to read this book. There are certain cues that they inadvertently give off that men view as sexually exploitable. And are women aware of giving off these cues? I think I think for the most part, they're not. Okay, and uh, what, what are these cues? So, well, one is seeming ditzy or not very intelligent or what one of my graduate students said, uh, cognitively challenged, <laughs> uh, you know, kind of the euphemism of the, of the year. It being intoxicated, being sleepy, being seeming out of it due to, to drugs or some altered psychological state, and then being young. And this is one of the things that I think happens that creates mate value discrepancies is that women who are young and inexperienced in the mating market sometimes get snapped up by older men, sometimes these dark triad risk-taking bad boys, before they have a full, a good understanding of their own market value, their own mate value. And then over time, what happens is as the woman grows and gets more experience, gets more attention from men, they start to realize that maybe they could do a lot better than this guy who snapped them up early. That's when the guys start to marshal these tactics like intimate partner violence or, or gaslighting to try to keep the woman from leaving. And so even th- when we get to se- kind of getting into sexual coercion here, mm-hmm. that the studies are pretty clear that like in college and university, freshman women are much more vulnerable than even sophomores, juniors, and senior women. So it's like they leave the nest, they're away from their kin, they might be a thousand miles away from their friends and family. They're in a totally new situation. They're young, they're inexper- relatively inexperienced. And they're also not aware of evolutionarily modern things like uh, date rape drugs or uh, mm. spiked punch, you know, served in those uh, red solo cups that you don't really taste sweet. You don't really know how much alcohol you're consuming. And so rape rates are much higher among freshman women than more mature women as they gain more experience. Right. I think there's a real danger in, first of all, you're 18. You're moving away from home in this new college environment, and there's all these parties. And first of all, being unaware of the differences between men and women, and just being kind of unaware of how much sex is on men's minds to begin with. Then there's that whole element of trying to fit in and the party and everyone's drinking and not really knowing how much you can handle, how much alcohol you can handle, and being inexperienced just in that realm alone. And that can make young girls much more susceptible to these things. And in terms of, you know, the the spiked punch and the date rape drugs, how common is that today? 
I'm not aware of any studies about how common we know it occurs on college campuses and the alcohol absolutely occurs where men who are interested in sex encourage the woman to drink and so forth. I actually knew this one woman. I goes, this was a while back at my university. This is just a little anecdote that I think illustrates this is the, I was giving a talk with uh, my, my dean flew me up to Dallas and I was giving a talk to this group of potential donors mm-hmm. to the university. And, and I met the hosts. It was a, a very successful businessman, multimillionaire and his much younger, very attractive wife. And so I met her. I said, I'm David. And she said, hi, I'm Sally or whatever her name was. I'm the trophy wife. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, then I started to talk to her for a while. Then I talked to the husband. I said, like, how did you get together uh, with this person? Well, I saw this woman in, in a bar, and I basically bribed the bartender to keep topping off her, her wine glass so that she would always think it was full. And so she would you know, drink and not realize how much she was drinking. And in this case, it wasn't a case of sexual coercion, but a tactic of long-term mating. But I remember when I wrote my first book, The Evolution of Desire, I showed it to some colleagues and graduate students to read and give me feedback on. So I was talking about the importance of mead and sexual attraction, resources and bringing home the bacon and all that. And, mm-hmm. and so one of the graduates encircled that and he said, he said, David, um, mead is neat, but liquor is quicker. Oh, it's brilliant. No, but that I think is an important element here because we really can't separate this, you know, dating culture from the alcohol culture and the drinking culture yeah. that we have today. And alcohol, I mean, first of all, it it decreases your cognitive ability. So you're, it impairs your judgment, your decision-making. It also impairs your physical ability. So you're weaker when you're intoxicated. You have mm-hmm. less ability to physically defend yourself if there's an a, attack or sexual assault. You know, and then, of course, one other tactic that these guys do is they try to isolate the woman. In other words, get her away from her bodyguards, her friends. So she goes to a fraternity party with a friend and they try to get her away, get her in the back room where there's no bodyguards. Right. So, you know, we're speaking of this sexual coercion and, you know, these guys try to, who are these guys? You know, what's the profile of a guy who engages in date rape or any kind of rape for that matter? Yeah. Well, we know a fair amount about this, and it's basically the dark triad combined with a short-term mating strategy. And maybe I should just elaborate a little bit on the dark triad. Yeah. So narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. Narcissism, the hallmark of narcissism is grandiosity. So these guys think that they're smarter, more attractive, more intelligent, wittier, more cunning than anyone else. So they have an exaggerated sense of self. Second is entitlement. They feel entitled to a larger slice of the pie, and that includes sex as well. They feel sexually entitled. I'm so great, I deserve whatever woman I am attracted to. So that's narcissism. And then there's some other elements of narcissism. Then Machiavellianism is basically people who pursue an exploitative social strategy. So these are the liars, the cheaters, the deceivers, the people who view other people as pawns to be manipulated for their own selfish goals. Right. People who use people. Yes. In a nutshell. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, That's a great summary. And then psychopathy, one of the hallmarks of psychopathy is lack of empathy. So most normal human beings have an empathy circuit that is, we feel 
emotional compassion for someone who's suffering or someone who gets hurt. Psychopaths don't at all. Right. They, and they, they lack the emotional empathy part. Yeah. And so it's just simply not present. Sometimes they learn to fake it, fake displaying it, but they don't feel it. They just are totally indifferent to the suffering of other people. And so it's just their selfish goals that matter and the other person's suffering are totally is totally irrelevant. Right. And these guys are often very good at cognitive empathy. So they have good theory of mind. They understand how to get into people's heads, but they just don't care about people. And they don't feel the emotional component of what the other person is feeling. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Now so when you, you take this dark triad cluster and you combine it with a short-term mating strategy, that's the most dangerous combination. So these are the guys who are most likely to be serial sexual harassers and serial sexual coercers or or rapists. And this is something that most people don't realize and gets to a point that we alluded to earlier, which is not all men. And that's why I hope that my book, my book is not a book of male bashing. My book is an attempt to identify the underlying psychology of conflict between the sexes and the subset of men who's most likely to commit the egregious forms of sexual coercion. And it is these dark triad guys who are pursuing a short-term mating strategy. And they're serial in the sense that most guys, I think, are in reality morally, find morally abhorrent the idea of sexually harassing a woman or forcing her to have sex when she does not want to. Most guys find that morally abhorrent, but not these dark triad guys. That's part of their strategy. And so they tend, like an example I mentioned in the book is this guy, a former senator, Senator Packwood, who just had the classic sexual overperception bias. He thought he was just hot shit and that women <laughs> were attracted to his bulging biceps. And, and he knew that the, woman, the, the reason the woman happened to be in the copy room with him is because she wanted his body and everything. Anyway... Had 20 different women accused him of sexual harassment, and he basically resigned from the Senate before wow. there was a vote to oust him because he, he would have been ousted. But the point is, like, 20 women, and the same, or you look at uh, some of the more famous cases now, uh, Harvey Weinstein, dozens and dozens, probably more than 100 women, Bill Cosby, Jeffrey Epstein, these people where there are tons and tons of victims. And this gets to another issue that we, kind of alluded to before, which is the mate deprivation hypothesis, which is that, and this has been advanced by uh, Randy Thornhill, who is a very eminent evolutionary psychologist and biologist, and it's a perfectly plausible hypothesis. That is, men who cannot attract women through normal means of attraction or seduction resort to force as an alternative strategy. So what I call the colloquially the loser male strategy. So Right. If you can't get a woman, then you use force instead. But that's not necessarily what you found. Right, right. What I found, and I don't really have a stake in the outcome. I didn't I haven't didn't advance any hypotheses, but there's evidence that points in the opposite direction. That is men who are high status, men who are successful. So like Harvey Weinstein or even Bill Cosby, he had apparently multiple affair, consensual affairs, so there was no need for him to force women. Jeffrey Epstein, a multimillionaire or billionaire, depending on what they eventually find his resources are, 
uh, Harvey Weinstein, you know, uh, fabulously one of the most successful movie moguls in, in history. And so it's not the loser male. So the reason that I think that there was initial seeming support for the loser male hypothesis of sexual coercion is that if you look at convicted rapists, mm-hmm. they tend to come from the lower SES groups and so forth. But part of the reason for that, I argue, is that they don't have access to the high-powered lawyers. So first, that's what these guys, or even like in sexual harassment, like Bill O'Reilly, I don't know if you follow this, in, but uh, he was a very famous uh, newscaster on Fox News, accused of serial sexual harassment. But what he would do is he's a multimillionaire. He's able to pay off the women and have not non-disclosure agreements. So yeah, there was a great movie on that. I forget what it's called, but it was with uh, Charlize Theron and yes. Margot Robbie. Yeah, that was called uh, Bombshell, right, I think. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting movie. Yeah, true, true to life. And so the point is, well, actually, there's, there's a couple of points here. One is that these high-status men can often get away with sexual coercion in ways that low-status men cannot partly through their lawyers, but partly because women are more reluctant to bring charges of sexual coercion against these guys because of the lower likelihood of being believed. And Um, these guys can do a lot of damage for that woman's career, you know. Exactly, exactly. And that's why one of the points that I emphasize in the book is in the context of sexual harassment, but also applies to sexual coercion, is that women are forced into this terrible bind if the guy has power in the workplace because he sexually harasses her. We know that men get angry when they're spurned, when they're rejected by by women, and they will sometimes retaliate and try to destroy the woman's career. And Harvey Weinstein actually made quite blatant threats about precisely that. Sleep with me. Don't you know that I could destroy your career? You know, in a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. And and probably could. At that time, no, no, he's now in jail, so can't do anything now. So this power dynamic, you know, if uh, we're thinking of something like this in the workplace, what are some of the tactics that women can use or have shown to use to handle this sexual harassment or coercion? Yeah, well, they often, women will often try to use what is sometimes called soft rejection tactics. So the guy makes sexual advances meet me in my hotel room or let's go out on, for a drink after work, or whatever. And it's a clear sexual or romantic advance. And the woman says something like, well, no, I'm busy I, this weekend or I have a lot of work to do or I, ha- or I have a boyfriend. So in other words, trying to reject the guy, but without him feeling so offended that he will try to extract revenge on her. But the problem with that is that while women are kind of forced to walk that fine line, the man might think, oh, well, you're busy this weekend. What about <laughs> next weekend? You know, or is your boyfriend in town right now if he's not in town? And again, yeah. with that feeling, that narcissism of like, I'm so great. Of course, she's going to be attracted to me. Yeah, she'll leave her boyfriend for me, of right, course. Right. Or if he's out of town, she'll have sex with me this weekend. You know, so. Right. So. For women who are listening to this conversation today, what would you want them to take away to be able to, first of all, better understand the differences between them and men? And also, how can they prevent you know, unwanted sexual harassment, but also how can they prevent the more 
pressing dangers of sexual coercion, assault, and things like that? Yeah, well, so what I would say is that we have to broaden your question to include mm-hmm. men. We'll get to men. Okay, okay. So, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. but just in the sense that I think the first step in the equation to solving these problems, and really that's why I wrote the book, is because I, I, I mean, I, these forms of sexual conflict are horrible and inflict massive damage, and both on women and on men, you know, because even like, let's say, even though women are the primary victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault, they also have brothers, fathers, sons, male friends who care about them deeply. And so they're, you know, what you can call secondary victims. And of course, all the female friends and relatives also are secondary victims. So I think the first step, though, is an accurate understanding of male and female sexual psychology. And as we had talked about earlier or alluded to, that there are deficits in both sexes where we don't understand each other's sexual psychology. So I think the first step is actually knowledge of it. And this is why it frustrates me sometimes around people who are what I call sex difference deniers. Oh, don't get me started. Okay. okay. <laughs> no, no, but yes, it's, it's a huge issue of, you know, this idea of there's no differences between the sexes. And, you know, if you're a young woman hearing that and you're going to college parties and you think that there's no sex differences, you think that, you know, oh, I can just be one of the guys and I can drink like one of the guys and that can lead to trouble. Yes. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I think the lack of understanding of each other's sexual psychology is really profound. So Mm -hmm. just as a concrete example, women a guy can walk down, like this 85-year-old man that right. I alluded to, or you can walk down a city block, I'll say in New York City when it, before the pandemic, or maybe now, I don't know. And a man could have sexual attraction and sexual fantasies about half a dozen women in the space of two <laughs> minutes. And I think most women walking down the same city block would not have sexual fantasies or attraction toward half a dozen men. So, and they wouldn't assume that the men are having these fantasies either. Yeah, exactly. So this gulf in cross-sex mindering is critical. And I think just, so step one is education about these differences. Men need to understand female sexual psychology and women need to understand male sexual psychology. And so I think that's, that's really the first step. And part of that, so when we talk about what women can do, I think there are things that men can do as well. So, so one is, that women can use what historically over evolutionary time has been a very powerful defense, and that is bodyguards. So having male friends, having female friends, having kin around has been very important. And at the same time, men who care about their female friends and their daughters and their sisters, et cetera, need to step up to the plate and be bodyguards. And not like beat up other guys, <laughs> but just their mere presence deters sexual aggression. Right, just being present. Yeah. And so I think that that's, that's why I want to include men in, in this discussion, of, because otherwise it seems, as we kind of alluded to before, it seems like if we say, okay, what can women do to avoid this? It seems like we're blaming women. No, 100%. And so, we don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> we're absolutely not doing that. I wanted to start kind of by seeing what women can do, what is in their power to reduce the likelihood, first of all. But as you said, we can't leave men out of this conversation. And first, there's this 
connection between the sexes where right now we've been talking about the differences between men and women, but really our lives are constantly intertwined, right? You have a father and a mother and brothers and sisters, and you have friends who are both male and female and cousins and everything. And you have this very intertwined community of different people, different sexes in your life. And we can't separate that out. So violence against women at the end of the day affects everybody and doesn't only affect women. So that's just one thing. And the second is, you know, your book is called Why Men Behave Badly. And as we said, not all men behave badly. But what I wonder is what in education of boys, you know, early on can prevent some of these misunderstandings and even worse forms of harassment and assault? Yeah, I think what I would do if I were king of the universe is mm-hmm. I would make this a required course in, let's say, even high school. Because, you know, people enter puberty at a young age and all of a sudden there's this whole suite of hormonal and psychological shifts. They enter into mate competition. They become sexually attractive. But there's no, like, you know, in high school there are courses on chemistry and algebra and history and all these things, but there are almost no courses on, well, let's have a deep understanding of how to create a good relationship, how to select a good mate, how to deal with conflicts in relationships, how to minimize the odds of sexual coercion. So I would have like a required course on that sort of thing. Probably won't happen in in the near future, but I'm sorry, I've lost the thread of your question. What, no, so, what, so what in the education of boys can we, how can we raise boys, you know, from the early years to later, how can we educate them to avoid these, you know, sexual conflicts? Yeah. I think that, as I mentioned earlier, and I think this is important, just awareness of each other's sexual psychology and the sex differences therein. So male understanding of the fact that he is will be sexually attracted to women who are not interested in him. And that if she smiles at him, that does not mean that she's interested. You should wait until you have more information, <laughs> you know, more, more cues that make it a little bit more obvious. And women are actually pretty good at that. I mean, sometimes people are like, well, men are the initiators and women respond. But I actually think it's, it's an exaggeration because women clearly signal to guys that they're interested. Yeah, they're dropping the handkerchief, uh, so to speak. Do you know about this? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. Metaphorically dropping yeah. the handkerchief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And But even there, like, there are guys who are oblivious to these cues. <laughs> so Right, The just having this information is so powerful and can really make a shift. And I'm sure, you know, for men reading this book, some of the things that give an explanation, for instance, for the desire for sexual variety. I think just understanding that could be liberating, you know, to understand where it's coming from. And even if you're in a relationship, but you're looking at other women and, you know, you're conflicted and you don't know why, you know, you can't not pay attention to other women, you know, where this is coming from. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that it does. I mean, I concrete example of this and is um, a guy told me that after he read my book, he would find himself, he was in a married relationship, and he was attracted to women other than his wife. And he interpreted that to mean, well, maybe I don't love my wife anymore. But once he read my book, he realized, no, these are two separate mechanisms. Love is an emotion that evolved for long-term pair bonding. 
And then there's this desire for sexual variety. And so when he, he said it, it caused him to be more faithful to his wife because he realized, oh, that's just my desire for sexual variety. It doesn't mean I don't love my wife. Right. Don't trust everything you think or feel in this sense, <laughs> right? And I think this idea of making all of these things more conscious is really goes back to making the unconscious conscious and knowing where these drives are coming from. And as you said before, that it's a desire for sexual variety, not a need. Even though we have all of these drives and desires, we still can overcome them, obviously. And it's learning how to manage them and learning where they're coming from also can help. Yeah, and and the recognition that we have a multiplicity of desires. So we have a desire for sex, but we also have a desire for the esteem of our friends and colleagues and social reputation and other things. And so I think that part of this education would result in a shifting of kind of social norms. So with guys like saying to other guys, like, no, it's not cool to be harassing this woman. Right. You know? And that's why I think that guys as well as women need to enter the solution Absolutely. matrix. There was this public service announcement kind of a thing on social media in Israel where there's a, a phrase, you know, be a man, right? Like be a man, go talk to her, go, you know, like men kind of egging each other on. But the public service announcement said, don't be a man, be a human being. You know, <laughs> in Hebrew, it sounds a little better maybe, yeah. but but the idea was there's this competition and, you know, maybe you see it more in uh, fraternities and things like that and the bro code and all of these things where men are encouraging each other to be, you know, sexually coercive, but that it can really come from men themselves of not valuing that kind of behavior. Yes. So I think that's a great point. And I would add one more to that. And that is that there is this subset of men, the dark triad mm -hmm. men who are pursuing short-term mating, who are going to be relatively impervious to these social interventions. Like with a psychopath that lacks empathy, there's all the evidence. So you can't cause a psychopath to have empathy when that circuit does not exist in the psychopath. And so in that context, I think that what we need is education about the cues to the dark triad and the cues to the guy pursuing a short-term mating strategy. And there are some cues. So for example, mm -hmm. how the person treats other people. So like I so look at how the guy treats the wait staff when you go out to a restaurant. You know, is he rude to them? Does he insult them or etc. How does the guy treat animals, cats and dogs, pets? And sometimes like some of these guys are like they grow up like they enjoy torturing pets and things like that. Right. One of the um, early signs. Yeah, one of one of the early signs. And so kind of knowledge of what the cues to the dark triad are. And I try to highlight some of them in, in the book, and there are undoubtedly more to be discovered. But so there is this subset that's not going to be highly susceptible to changing our socialization and information campaigns around these things. So awareness of who those guys are, I think, is, is critical. Absolutely. And, you know, across the board, just kind of a delegitimization of this kind of behavior right. can help signal these guys out to see the difference between how they behave 
and how is acceptable to behave can definitely help, right? So, you know, just kind of to close, if people could take one message away from this conversation today, what would you want it to be? Well, I guess it would be mating is a complicated and complex thing, especially in the modern environment. I would say we have to understand the components of our sexual psychology, the sex differences therein, the functions of those component parts, and we need to bridge the gap between the sexes. That's why the, the last chapter of my book is called Mind the Gap. Mm-hmm. And it comes from this, you know, in the UK, there's the, the tube stations. There are all these signs, Mind the Gap. And it means like, don't fall into this crack between the platform and the, and the subway. But we need to mind the gap. That's why I get frustrated at the sex difference deniers. And I understand the, the motivation, which is often... Equality. Yeah, which is often benevolent and, and good. We don't, people worry that somehow if there are evolved sex difference, they will be used to... Um, against women. Against women to prevent them from doing certain things. But It's often liberating to understand the differences and to understand the different motives and the different drives and... Having that awareness plus equal opportunities, I think, is the best yes. formula. Yeah, and the sex difference denialism in this domain, so this is we're talking about the sexual domain, the mating mm-hmm. domain, the denialism harms precisely the half of the population most likely to be victimized by it. And so I think it, it's harmful to women to deny, and there's overwhelming evidence for it, you know, so... I mean, if you look at psychology, I mean, psychology is currently in a replication crisis and findings are not replicated. Some of the most celebrated findings, but these are rock solid, highly replicated, universal, replicated across dozens and dozens of cultures. And so we have to acknowledge them and come to grips with them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, your work has been amazing in illuminating these differences and explaining the causes you know, the evolutionary causes of all of these different drives and behaviors. And I think this book is so important and this topic can often become so emotionally tense and loaded that it's very hard for people to really get down into the facts. And I think that what you're doing in your book is really clearly laying out the facts and showing all of the different theories and possible explanations for for the differences and the conflicts and having more of that you know around this conversation can really help to change the culture in a better direction well well thank you i take that as a high compliment about my my book and i i hope your listeners will will take it to heart i'm sure i'm sure they will and i really urge everyone to read this book it's amazing it wasn't an easy read but it's super, super important. Well, thank you. Thank you. It's been delightful to have this conversation. And um, you've clearly done your homework and are <laughs> well intellectually steeped in these issues. So, so I appreciate that. Well, thank you so much. And this has been such a wonderful conversation. For everyone out there listening, thank you for tuning in to The Bigger Picture. I hope you found this conversation interesting. You can find us on all podcasting platforms, wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to hit subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. My name is Roni Firon. This is The Bigger Picture. And thank you for listening. Till next time. <laughs>